Thank you very much. Uh, part of the uh, unspoken aspect of that is the, the fact that uh, I am a third generation Montana and I grew up in the logging family. Uh, uh, my uh, father began logging at the advanced age of 10 on river drives in northwestern Montana and uh, uh, finished his logging career at age 74 uh, up in Lincoln County. Uh, and throughout that in, uh, entire time, uh, all three of the boys in the family uh, followed in that. And uh, as young kids, we were introduced into that as the, really the only line of work that uh, seemed to be available to us. But uh, out of his three boys, only one of them became a, a career logger, uh, my brother Arlene, who's still doing that up in the Eureka country. And uh, uh, the other son, we say, became a lawyer and disgraced the family. <laughs> and, uh, he, he's had a career in law and owned a law firm over out of Shoto. And uh, I, uh, after I came back from the Navy, uh, uh, went into journalism and worked for a time in the Interlake and Kalispell and then worked in public relations for a time and uh, then was hired uh, by the Daily Interlake uh, in Kalispell and where I did a, a strange thing, the first series of articles I did was a five-part series about a, a very strange organization in Helena called the Montana Historical Society and uh, I became friends with a, a guy named uh, uh, by the, the very strange name of uh, Bob, and what was his last name? Morgan? Well, Bob Morgan, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we became friends with a guy's name, uh, uh, Rex Reiki, who happens to be sitting right here, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, became conversant with the work of uh, the organization that we're here, uh, uh, all of us listening to and participating in today. And then uh, uh, I was hired by a in, into public relations by the corporation that uh, uh, operated out of uh, Columbia Falls and Butte and Anaconda and, and a place called Bonner, Montana called the Anaconda Company. And uh, I was uh, employed to write a brochure about uh, their uh, water quality program in the upper Clark Fork River and uh, photographed uh, the work of their uh, uh, headwaters uh, uh, work in uh, Warm Springs and took a beautiful photograph uh, of that and uh, I noticed that there were some objects that were going into the, out of the impoundment and into the very point that was the headwaters of the Clark Fork River. And there was a man there named John Hazen, who was the head of the Butte Water Company, and he was a chairman of the Montana Water Board at the time. I didn't know that. I learned this later. And I said, John, are those what I think they are? And they were what I thought they are. They were, which were human excrement, turds, in other words. Being a journalist and growing up in a logging family, I prefer to use simple words. And he said, yes, they are, but famous words to me. And they became something on which I made a life-changing decision. And he said, oh, that's all right, Dale. They've been neutralized. <laughs> the pH, I learned the pH plus and minus factor. They've been neutralized, but they were flowing into the Clark Fork River. And as an individual and as a person, that was unacceptable to me. And I, the next day, I resigned my job for the Anaconda Company 
number two man in their public relations department. And I came to Missoula and I applied for a job with the Missoulian. And they didn't have any jobs. That was on a Friday afternoon. Ed Coyle, the editor of the Missoulian, didn't have a job. And that night, another fellow that worked for the Missoulian quit and moved to Alaska. And Ed Coyle called me on Monday morning and offered me a job. And I came to work as state editor for the Missoulian. And I want to say that one of the great things that happened there was that I came to work and worked in one of the people who shared then the next tenure. I've actually left uh, uh, there in 1978, not 1975. One of the people I've worked with is sitting here, and he's on the board of the historical side. His name's Charlie Johnson. He's sitting right here. And we worked on the best daily newspaper in the United States at that time. And I have at home a little book written about my, uh, newspapering in the United States of America in the 1970s. And in that, the author said, the best small-town newspaper in the United States in the 70s was the Daily Missoulian. And we worked on it, and we won a lot of awards, didn't we, Charlie? That's right. At that time, <laughs> A national award, and then became the the reporter for the Montana Lead uh, Newspaper State Bureau, which they closed down a couple of years ago, which was a pride of Montana journalism for the years you worked on it. And I, I'm saying that as a as a journalist, and I became the first Montana journalist to win Neiman Fellowship at Harvard. And I'm proud of that. I really am, because we did good work doing investigative journalism, and one of the things we did was to cover the Bitterroot Forest issue, not just on the Bitterroot, but on the Flathead and on the Beaverhead, and every forest in Montana. But the Bitterroot at that time literally became the showcase, along with the Monongahela in, uh, in West Virginia, for what was going on in the national forest everywhere. It, the Bitterroot and Monongahela became the showcase. We have in the audience today Dave Stacker, a young forester who was on the Monongahela at that time, right, Dave? After. Afterwards, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Afterwards. The reason the Better Written and Monongahela became the show place for what was going on in the Tongass in Alaska and the Teton uh, Ridger in Wyoming and the, the forests of California and uh, the forests in Arizona and Georgia and elsewhere was because Senator Jennings Randolph of West Virginia and Senator Mike, uh, excuse me, Senator Lee Metcalf of Montana where the co-chairs of the Senate Public Lands Committee uh, were able to literally take the uh, subcommittee members onto these forests to do the field investigative work. And the other key members of that committee at the time were Senator uh, uh, Hatfield uh, and uh, Senator, Gale, uh, Senator ha uh, Hatfield out of uh, uh, Oregon and uh, Senator Gail McGee out of Wyoming, Senator Frank Church out of Idaho. So when, what began all this thing? It was the fact that the, the historically, now let's start with the fact that Mary, you can give us, is Mary Williams in the audience? I think I saw her. She knows what this is. The first ranger station built in the United States. What? At least it's the oldest surviving. It's the oldest surviving one. And it was paid for by the two rangers who built it, wasn't it? Yeah, you know, her names, tell me. Yeah, right, and they paid for it themselves. It's up here. And on the West Fork of the Bitter Red. Still standing. This, of course, is a rebuilt one, but it's great. The old Alta Ranger Station. Excuse me? Rebuilt? It's rebuilt, hasn't it? It's been restored. Restored, but it's the same one. <laughs> <laughs> Look at how 
Look at how, look at how fancy and big it is. Isn't it amazing? But one of the things here, this historic bird, this mill left by Florence, but this was literally, look at the number of people uh, at work in this old mill left by Florence. But this is how light the influence was upon the land in those early days. And then we come to one in 1964, one of the first clear cuts that was on the Bitterman. This was the type of impact that changed from the days and why the thing, the clear cut that led. What was that I heard? <laughs> Ooh, good. good. Well, again, what, what we're dealing with here is the kind of emotional reaction that dealt within the people, not only here but throughout the forest system in terms of a reaction to the type of techniques that were visited upon the land. And again, the introduction of terracing on the forest land throughout the nation, not just on the Bitterroot, where uh, you had uh, it literally engraved onto the land where they would introduce these uh, terraces and then and the fact is that the seeding that was done upon them, the reintroduction, the planting of trees, was largely a successful forest technique to regenerate the forest lines. That has to be acknowledged. It was largely successful. It didn't work everywhere, but it was largely successful in terms of regenerating and growing trees. But you had to deal with the aesthetic factor. And they underestimated the reaction that came from the public on that. This was a situation on the upper Bitterroot where there was sedimentation that came into the streams as a result of that. They underestimated the public reaction that occurred in that regard. And when particularly when all of a sudden there was from all over the country reaction, uh, again a, a scene on the upper Bitterroot took Creek you have a general forest practice. When the serious inquiry occurred and the studies began, uh, one of the, and I'm going to talk a little bit later, I've got, I'm going to quote out of, the, uh, of the, uh, some of the studies that were made first uh, by the United States Forest Service itself. Uh, Dr. Uh, uh, William Worf, who was a, a member of the Forest Service himself, uh, had, held a led a study that the internal study that the Forest Service made uh, where they uh, analyzed uh, the impacts of the watershed. Uh, Dr. Worf's uh, study uh, minimized the impacts of this on the, literally on the watershed itself. They did not support uh, the uh, Forest Service uh, in terms of its impact on wildlife. One of the social problems that the Forest Service encountered on this, that there was a former regional forester named Axel Lynn who poo-pooed the impacts on wildlife, and he actually hurt the Forest Service publicly when he put in an a, a, uh, article to the uh, newspapers that the critics should, uh, should actually accept the fact of this, that it was beneficial to wildlife because these places created uh, beneficial benefits to elk because, because it gave them a flat place to lay down and rest. <laughs> and, and if you could imagine what the, the reaction among wildlife enthusiasts was to that, because it, uh, it was taken literally uh, as a, a put down of anybody who had concern for impacts on wildlife. 
Well, what person? This is an amazing sociological situation. That this is a picture of a man named G.M. Brandbord, who himself was for 20 years supervisor of the Bitterroot National Forest. That this picture was, the date this picture was taken, this a picture I took, he was 73 years old. At the time, and I was in my 30s at the time, I thought he was an old, old man, and I'm now older than that myself. <laughs> I thought he was an old, old man. And I'm going to make a, a statement here from the point of view of a so sociological observation. He was able, without the power of the internet, without the power of any literally structured organization, to raise to national level an issue of forest conservation and keep it alive nationally for eight years without any formal organization. Now think about that. It was the power of the issue itself that enabled him to do that. And one other key thing. He had as his typist and assistant a lady, his wife, Ruth Brandborg, who for 33 years had been president of Claremont College in California, a graduate of Stanford University. No one ever knew that Ruth was doing this. But Ruth was a dynamo of a lady, of a person. A person who had contacts and connections beyond comprehension. Never got, a, never got an iota of ink. But if Ruth Brandborg picked up a telephone and got in touch with something, with somebody, something happened. She was a founder and a linkage of the League of Women Voters. Wow. I don't know if Brandy ever really truly realized the power of that little lady who was his second wife, but I knew. I'm going to share one other key thing about Ruth Brandborg that historically needs to be known because the world of journalism needs to know. I did a series of articles. Brandy called me on the Missoula and said, I had done a series of articles about the Flathead National Forest and some problems they were having on the middle fork of the Flathead, a place that ultimately led to the designation of the Great Bear Wilderness. And he said, Dale, you need to know what's going on in the Bitterroot Forest. Would you come down and talk with me? And I came down and I met Randy and his wife. And they suggested I do a series of articles about the Bitterroot National Forest. I came down. And as a result of that conversation, I came back and I talked to my editor and I laid out a proposal that we come down and we do a series of articles about the Bitterroot. And the issue was, of course, the glamour issue was clear-cutting. But the substantive issue was two things, overcutting, and the second issue was the absence of multiple-use management on the Bitterroot, the, the denouement of multiple-use management, cutting the forest at the expense of wildlife values and aesthetic values and water quality values, et cetera, et cetera. Now, who were the complainants? This was a key issue to the success of Brandborg's complaint. They were landowners. This was a point. I attended a seminar the other night in Stevensville by Fred Swanson, who had wrote, he wrote a book about this guy, Jim Brandborg, Mr. Brandborg in the Bitterroot. The complainants weren't the environmental groups. The complainants were ranchers, landowners. The complainants were who? Loggers. Loggers. Loggers with no forestry degrees 
but a little old father named Ernie Townsend, fifth generation bitter rooter, a guy who had, his complaint was, what have I done? I have cost my sons and grandsons their jobs by cutting them out, and the history has proved him right. I have cost my sons and grandsons their jobs in the bitter root, and history has proved him right. He made that complaint. That was the first article. I went and interviewed, and I went out in the field. By the way, I want to make a point here, a historical point. I personally made 272 field trips under the Bitterroot Forest. I made seven, that's formal tours. I made 78 additional tours on my own to go check things out. I went to Washington, D.C. to attend 16 hearings. I attended all 12 of the national hearings in Atlanta, Georgia, and Michigan, and California, and Oregon, and Washington, D.C. to attend the hearings of the National Forest Management Act. It was wonderful, a little newspaper in Missoula, Montana, was the only newspaper in the United States to send a reporter to every one of those hearings. That's an incredible expense for a little paper in Montana to have done that at the time. They aren't doing that anymore. But, 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 but our, our editor did that at the time, saw to it that that was done because we picked that issue up as important to our, to our constituency in Montana. Well, anyway, let's just go on and take a look. I need a sense of time. Uh, how, how are we? Okay, one of the contacts... Ten minutes. Huh? Okay, one of the contacts that we made... Now, this is a section that Brandborg took us to where in the 1930s when he was supervisor, they had done selective cut logging. He's standing on a stump of a tree they had cut in 1937, showing the saplings in the growth and the cuttable timber that had come up since they cut this in the 1930s. One of the contacts he made was with a man named Brock Evans, who was at that time the vice president of the Audubon Club in Seattle. Later he became vice president of the Sierra Club, came to Montana, elevated the issue overnight. I did a, a interviews with Brock Evans, it was the second article, in our series became a national issue overnight. This is clear cut on blue joint. This is Brandy showing that uh, cut and the terracing to Senator Gail McGee of Wyoming. This later became known as McGee Point. <laughs> uh, I had one of the uh, one of the, the hard points as a journalist. You write a story. The, the, the journalist, the writer of the story, and, and Charlie could back me up. We don't write the headlines, do we? Our editor does. We had a new editor at that time. We just hired me from Cincinnati, Ohio. His name was Jack Sawyer. Is that right? He wrote the headline. Gail McGee in the story. Senator Gail McGee, who had toured on behalf of the Senate Public Lands Committee, had toured national forests in the Tongass and Alaska and in Wyoming. And he said uh, of this, this is the worst I've seen in the United States. That was in the headline. I got chewed up in the letters to the editor. If Dale Burke said this is the worst in the United States, I didn't say that, Dale McGee said it. But nonetheless, uh, the, at the time, Sam Reynolds, who was our editorial page editor, said he had two standing headlines about forest management. And one is, uh, he never ran the second one, but he had one that said, Burke is wrong. And it once said, Burke is a bastard. <laughs> but so be it. Uh, I used to love that because it, it, it gave you great credibility whether you were right or wrong or whatever. And uh, the other aspect that came to, uh, here, now this is, uh, it so happened then that there was this call 
for national hearings. And, and that was back and forth, and there was great effort on both uh, pro and con, from the industry and from the environmental groups, all over the United States to have Senate hearings held. And CBS, uh, picking up on the thing sent, Richard Threlkel, that's right there, that's Richard Threlkel, and Brandy being interviewed on Robin Gulch, there's the cameraman right here, uh, on, on, uh, up in the upper bitterroot. And lo and behold, then after they finished that, they interviewed uh, me as a journalist, and guess right the day before the hearings, Washington, D.C., which interview did they run on CBS and Walter Cronkite, but the one with me. <laughs> and my comment was that uh, I remember, and I was back in D.C. for the hearing, and which they ran the one with me. And I just made the comment that we were there to decide whether we were doing practicing forestry on the national forests or whether the forests were being run <coughs> simply for the benefit of the lumber. And, uh, I, when Lee Metcalf introduced me at the Senate hearings, he said that I might be the most controversial journalist in America. So, <laughs> anyway, this is what we were talking about. As you can just see the prevalence, this is on the blue joint in the upper bitterroot, and this was the type of uh, cutting that we had everywhere on the forest. You can just see that it was just a prevalent type of thing uh, everywhere in the forest at the time. What was happening at the same time that was going on as a result of the, the, the groundedness in the common place of the Bitterroot, this is Brandy, but this happened to be Gladwin Hill of the New York Times. Champ Hannon, 25 years superintendent of public instruction in the Bitterroot, but also a retired ranger of the uh, district, Sula district of the Bitterroot National Forest. And lo and behold, look at here. The New York Times ran six days on the front page of the New York Times, the National Forest issue, and who is this on the terrace, in the clear cut, on the blue joint, with Cladwin Hill of the New York Times walking that district. No longer could they escape, escape national uh, attention to this issue. It was front and center. Here we deal with Senator Frank Church. It's another senator. David, you could tell me, is that? I can't remember from way back then. I do believe that's Jennings Randall. I'm not sure. Well, I think it is, but I, I have a special history with Jennings Randall because at the time I was working full time for the Missoulian, and that meant about 60 hours a week at that time. And I was attending university full time. And I'd study until like midnight, and at 4 o'clock in the morning, the phone would ring. Hi, Dale, this is Jennings. What's going on? Hello. <laughs> oh, how do you, how do you, when you're, you say, hello, Jennings. <laughs> and I would get so frustrated at the fact that he didn't make any distinction between the difference in time zones. <laughs> and so you, you just said, hello, we're Frank Church. And later during the year I was at, at Harvard, Frank uh, came to, uh, Church came to Cambridge and talked several times. And uh, I, I had just wonderful conversations with that man. I had great high regard for Frank Church as a, as a person and as a senator. And I, I thank Lee Metcalf for the fact that he made sure that I, I got to know those people. This is the Montana timber industry. Uh, when they talked, and it was very interesting, that they used a technique at the hearing of, they were allotted two hours, they took up six, and, and, when, and, and when it was done, the hearing was supposed to be over that day, and uh, the hearing closed, it was over. And not one of the Montana uh, environmental uh, or uh, groups, Brandy didn't get a chance to testify, none of them did. The hearing closed. And when they went back behind the closed doors there, 
you could have heard Lee Metcalf if you had been in Stevensville. <laughs> and by God, they were going to extend the hearing to at least another day. They ran them two more days. Lee Metcalf insisted, and everybody got a chance to be heard. And uh, as a result of that, it was led to the fact that the National Forest Management Act uh, continued. Now, I want to I want to close. This is literally the way they invented this incredible little machine that would walk along those terraces and plant those trees. Now, by and large, historically, 70 to 80 percent of the trees that were planted took and regenerated. Uh, but there were plantations on which they suffered uh, as little as 0% regeneration. And I want to show you, tell you one story. Here's a picture. This is the picture that most often is shown where uh, eight to 10 years later, you would have, uh, this is Guide Saddle on the Bitterroot National Forest and the show that we did get regeneration. But I wanted to show you this picture. Anybody in the audience, can you identify the name of this clear cut? It's a 4,000 acre clear cut at Meadow Creek in the Bitterroot National Forest. It's official name is OMG, the Oh My God Clerica. <laughs> this was taken on the day the President's Panel on Timber, appointed by Richard Nixon, came to the Bitterroot, and they had set up a tour where a half a mile back from this, the bus was to stop and they have lunch. And GM Brandborg and this is Doris Milner on the right here. Whoop, I'm sorry, I'm gonna take that back. Doris Miller on the right there. Uh, and this auto teller here was to stop and Jim Brandborg sitting up in the front grabbed the shoulder, uh, shoulder of the driver and he said, son, we've got to go on up here another half mile. <laughs> and they drove it up and he stopped him right here and the guy who was heading the tour said, oh my God, and I happened to quote that. And there was 4,000 acres in the plan at the time it stated simply this, that they would re-harvest this cut in 60 years. It's now been 70, and it's only at about 40% regeneration today. So those, those are the kinds of, uh, of literally of fictions that were laid upon us at the time. Now, I'm going to make a point. I do not believe that any of that was done with malevolence. I believe that those things were laid and laid out in the belief that that would happen. But there were mistakes made. And I'm going to quote from the study that was made by the, uh, the forestry school at University of Montana. I quote here the thing, UM study condemns Forest Service practices. The conclusions are clear and uncontestable, the study team said. Clear-cutting and terracing cannot be justified as an investment for producing timber on the Bitterroot National Forest. There are better and much more economical ways to provide for the nation's timber needs. Uh, I don't need to get into who was on the study on the thing, but the practice of terracing on the Bitterroot Forest should be stopped. Existing terracing areas should be dedicated for research. A clear distinction must be made between timber management and timber mining. Timber management, continuous production of timber crops is rational only on highly productive sites where an appropriate rate of return on invested capital can be expected. All other timber cutting activities must be considered as timber mining. 
Uh, the research basis for management of the Bitterroot National Forest is too weak to support the management practice used on the forest. Unless the job of total quality management is recognized by the agency leadership, the necessary financing for the complete task will, be, will not be aggressively sought. Manpower and budget limitations of public resource agencies do not at present allow for essential staffing and for integrated multiple-use planning. Uh, but the quantitative shortage of staff specialists will never be resolved unless the qualitative issue with respect to such specialists is first resolved. Da, da, da. We find the bureaucratic line structure as it operates archaic and desirable and subject to change. The manager on the ground should be much nearer the top of the career ladder. Uh, the Forest Service as an effective and efficient bureaucracy needs to be reconstructed so that substantial, responsible, and local public participation in the processes of policy, formation, and decision-making can, quote, naturally, unquote, take place. It appears inconceivable and incongruous to us at that at this time, with the great emphasis upon a broad multiple-use approach to our natural resources, especially those remaining in public ownership, that any representative group or institution in our society would advocate a dominant use philosophy with respect to our natural resources. Yet, it is the judgment of the committee that it, this is precisely what is occurring through the federal appropriation process via uh, via executive order and in the public land law review commission's report. Uh, blah blah blah. Well, I got an incredible email this morning, uh, and uh, someone read that I was going to be giving this talk. Uh, I'll close with this. That uh, this is uh, regard to. The study of this. There is one massive roadblock in getting the change as stated in the laws into the agency's regular behavior, and that is the simple fact that the Forest Service is saddled with the annual output goal for timber that makes sound management of our national forests impossible. The change will not come until the management of the forest is based on the land's capability produced within recognized and honor national limits. And then it says that it is my, this is Dr. Arnold Boley speaking, it is my hope that sound intelligent forestry will succeed in this country in spite of the power and the ingenuity of private greed. Keep slugging, he's speaking now to young foresters. Keep slugging deep deeper and deeper for the truth. Keep the public informed and involved and someday we will overcome. There is no winning or losing here. We just go on and on. And winning or losing can be temporary and often are. So, you young ones, there will always be a battle going on. Get used to it. Never give up. Never lose your energy, your devotion, or your sense of humor. And I'm reminded of a photograph I have in my office that was taken on the high divide right up there, in which I have a photograph of Dr. Arnold Boley and of myself, and Gifford Pinchot, Jr., and Senator Liette, and myself. And it's a photograph I honor because it speaks to what we need to speak to the foresters who do the work for us. Thank you.